Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's Podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. I uh, confess I would have much rather preached the gospel lesson to you than that long, strange passage from Genesis where uh, terrible things happen and history, the history of God's people is so profoundly messed up and complicated. Um, I would have, I like the gospel passage much more. Jesus says, follow me, come and see, and we follow this guy, Jesus. And so the, uh, the question for me always, first of all, can you hear me? Is this something, can you hear? Okay. Um, question of the passages in the Old Testament is how do, how does, uh, Genesis speak Christ to us. How does it bear Christ to us? Um, and so I want to do two readings. I want to first go through and make sure that I have it right, what's actually happening on the page. And that's, I don't know what you call it, a literal reading or a cliff notes reading or a let's make sure we get the summary right. And then I'm going to go through it again and we're going to ask the scriptures to bear Christ to us. So one will be a regular reading. The other one will be a, I don't know what you call it, a sacred reading, a, a, a proclamatory reading. Um, we'll do both. Um, so if you turn to your page that we find Genesis on, it's page five. Um, first of all, let me tell you who I am. I'm John. I'm a friend of Brian's. I preached here before. I think it must have been a, at least a year ago. I didn't, we did not know such things as COVID when I was here last um, that now COVID is among us. Um, my connection with Brian is Brian was my first pastor that I had who pastored me. I had lots of pastors who preached to me over the years. I had lots of pastors who um, taught me about it. Pat, uh, Brian was the first pastor who pastored me, who was involved in um, the nitty gritty things of my life and cared about what happened to me consistently. And um, that is his gift uh, he also is a good preacher, and he's many things, but to me, he was uh, the first pastor who pastored me. Um, and uh, I work for an organization called Church Army down in Beaver Falls. Um, I'm out there with drug addicts and sex offenders and the mentally ill. Um, I, my job is to um, be with them, to listen to them, to help them depend on Christ and to win them back into fellowships that can receive them well. Um, it is a hard job, but I love it. Um, so just, just a little about me, and now we'll jump back into the text. Um, uh, Genesis 37, 18 through 36, has us in a weird moment. There is this man named Jacob. He has uh, deceived his own family to get a birthright and an inheritance. And then he has had children, one of which is named Joseph. And Joseph has had some dreams where he is the man. He is the center of attention and all his brothers and his family are bowing down to him. He has spoken these dreams to his brothers and it has made his brothers hate him very much. Not um, a dislike. The Bible is clear. They hate him. They cannot speak a peaceful word to him. So there is division within the family. 
Also, before he had these dreams where he was the center of attention, where he was the anointed uh, leader, um, he was given a coat of many colors, a cloak from his own father, which also made his brothers hate him. Um, There is a rich image there about what it means to be set apart and to be special. It means to suffer. Um, He was given a cloak which set him apart from the others. He was given um, a vision of being set apart from his own family. And it is the cause of much suffering for him in Genesis. And as we learn that uh, to be set apart by God is to suffer as Christ suffered. But first, let us just walk through and see what happens. Um, Joseph's brothers have gone out uh, to uh, tend their father's flock. And his father says to Joseph, um, go and ask how they're doing. Go find them. See what's up. And come back with what's happening. Is everything okay? Is everything not okay? Come back and tell me. Um, He does this. And when his brothers see him on the way to them, they begin to do something um, that maybe family members do or shouldn't do. They begin to conspire against him to kill him. That is when they see Joseph on the horizon coming from their father. They say, let us begin to find a way to kill our brother and to conspire against him. And then they said, why is that? Because here comes this dreamer. So it wasn't just that they disliked him. They disliked him for his dreams. They disliked him for his special status. And so what do they do? Um, They decide they're going to throw him into a pit, which they do. It says when Joseph brothers came to him, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. And that's actually considered a mercy because one of the brothers said, let's not kill him outright, let's just throw him into a pit. So that is the nice brother who says, how about a pit? Get him into the pit. And then they do something uh, very radical to show the hardness of their own heart. What did they do after murdering their brother or throwing him into a pit? They sat down to eat. They needed a break from the hard day's labor of murder, and they sat down to eat. And then when they saw a band of traders who were not part of their lineage, not part of their tribe, they thought, well, what's the next thing we should do? We won't kill him. We'll sell him to a foreign power. We'll enslave him. Let us sell our brother. And then, um, now the nice brother didn't know about that. He actually had a plan to rescue Joseph Um, That included the pit, included coming in and rescuing him. It didn't work out. His brother was sold into slavery. They go down. um, They make a a bogus excuse that Joseph had been devoured by an animal, which is actually what was more likely in the father's mind. He would have believed that. He would have believed easier that an animal had devoured his son as he was going than they would have believed that um, his own sons would kill his son. And so they, they come up with an excuse that... Um, basically plays on their father's trust. Like, he'll believe this. And then his father says, um, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning, as if to say, there is no future left for me. Sheol was the place of the dead. If you were dead, you had no future. In the Psalms, there is always this ask of God, please save us from Sheol. Save us from death. Save us from the place of the dead. And the father says, I shall go down there. That is where I belong now that my favorite son is dead. Okay. That is what happens. And now let's ask 
Where, how does Christ show himself in a text such as this? It's not in your um, lectionary uh, reading. It's not in the, uh, the liturgy here. But there is a, a, a very interesting line before this. And it says, these are the generations of Jacob. And in Genesis, what I remember from seminary is that when God made a promise to Abraham to bless his family and that his family would be a blessing to all nations, when he made this gospel promise of mercy and provision to Abraham, when we travel throughout the scriptures, whenever the words, these are the generations, my seminary professor said, look at that. That is as if to say, let's pick up the thread of that promise to Abraham because that promise is mitigated, or not mediated, mediated through families. I will bless your family. So whenever there's generations, whenever there's speak of families, we are just to hear, not just that here's a record of what happened, but here is God's promise continuing. Here is God's promise to Abraham moving through a line of patriarchs, moving through a line of people. So we are prepared to read what happens after those words, these are the generations, as holy history, as sacred history, not just random stuff happening, but here is God's promises working themselves out in real time through families. The problem is with a preface like that, get ready to hear holy history, get ready to hear God's mercies. We hear a story of murder. We hear stories of deception. We hear stories of family division and the Bible does not let either one cancel out the other. As if to say, holy history will include murder. It will include deception. It will include sin. But also, that sin, that messed up stuff, will not cancel out the fact that this is holy history. This is God working his mercies out in time and space. I just find that amazing. So let's listen again to this story of mercy. Joseph is set aside by a, a coat of many colors and by these dreams. Now it could be that the coat of many colors is just Jacob sinning again by playing his own favorites as he was the favorite. He shouldn't have done that maybe. And maybe these dreams are just made up. Maybe these dreams are something Joseph is finding a way to uh, hold over his brothers that he's better than them. Or the coat is a sign of God's blessing on Joseph. And the dreams are a sign of his anointing from the Lord to do special work and to be blessed. And so what happens when you are the blessed of the Lord? Let's read on. Right. He is told to go seek his brothers from his father. Why? Because his brothers should be safe. They should be safe, safe place to land. Go out, find your brothers. They will keep you safe. And what we see is that when they see him, instead of greeting him as one of their own, they decide to conspire against him and to kill him. Now, here is a great part, a great lesson to learn from Genesis, is that the problem and the evil is not with the foreign powers outside. Um, The problem is within the sacred family of God's own people. And what are they doing They want to kill the dreamer. The dreamer has a future that God has laid out where he will lead. And what the brothers want to do is not just dislike their brother or take him down a peg. They want to make their own future. They want to make their own future. That is the definition of original sin. 
Not that there are bad things out there that may harm us. That is true. And not just that we have evil thoughts or desires that come upon us and tempt us. That is true. But that there is something in the heart of man, in the heart of God's own family, that says, I want my future. I want the future that I will make for myself. And so in their minds, let's cancel out the future where Joseph is the winner and the head. Let's make our own future. And what does that involve? It has to involve killing Joseph. But they do more than kill him. Verse 23 says, When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. Um, the symbolism is rich. They could have just killed him, and they didn't. They could have just kicked him into a pit, and they didn't. They stripped him of his robe. That is not just hurting someone. That is an act of humiliation. There is a humiliating factor. Let us take the very sign of your promise and special blessing in this family. We will remove it from you with savagery. We will humiliate you and then we will throw you into a pit. And what is there in a pit? What happens when you have your cloak removed? You are completely exposed and vulnerable and then you are put in a pit. Two things are present in a pit, shame and fear. The shame is I am not wanted by my own family. I am so unwanted that they took my cloak and shoved me into a pit. Fear is, is related to shame. Shame is I am not wanted. Fear is my world is not safe. I do not live in a safe world. I live in a world where brothers kill their brother and where there are pits and where there is the chance of being enslaved and there is starvation. And so what seems to have happened is that Joseph has been kicked out of God's family. He has been stripped of a future. He has been told he is not wanted. And then he has been put in a disastrously unsafe situation. Now, here we find that um, it's not actually our circumstances that are our deepest problem. Um, shame and fear are the, the great enemies of the faith. Why? Circumstances cannot remove your faith like shame and fear can. Shame and fear have a tremendous distorting effect on what people trust. Um, to be a little bit autobiographical, I work on the streets with people. Their circumstances are perilous deeply perilous. They may actually lose their homes. They may lose their children. There are situations where they are in real trouble. But that is not as deep of a problem as the shame and fear they carry around of not being wanted. People that have the hardest time I find uh, with rejection and shame are recovering addicts. They have, there is no one hated more on the streets than, a recover, than an addict. And there is no one who has a harder time coming back, I've seen, into communities of faith than recovering addicts. They carry deeply the feeling of not being wanted. And the fear out there on the streets of the world not being safe. I do not live in a safe world. That's what people tell me. They don't say it like that, but that's what they're saying. That shame and fear do uh, torture on someone's trust. Okay, back to the text. They drew Joseph out of the pit and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph 
to Egypt. He's kicked out of God's holy family and sold to foreign powers. He is in not only ashamed and not safe, he is in bondage to a foreign entity. Okay. The question is, what does one do in a pit? What does one do in a pit? If a pit is more than circumstances, if a pit is when your future has been revoked through shame, fear, and bondage, what is one to do? The brothers have tried to provide their own future for themselves by destroying their brother. They go back and see their father. What does he say? There is no future. My future has died with my son. I now live in Sheol, the place of death. And it doesn't seem like Joseph has a future either. There is no way to provide yourself a future when you are in a pit. That is not what you do in a pit. What does one do in a pit? What does one learn in a pit? You see now the pit is more than just Joseph's circumstances. It is the state of shame, fear, and bondage that sin has us in. It is a picture of exile. What do we do in a pit? How will a future be provided when this is what God's family is like? And this is the situation that we find ourselves in. Well, this is what I've come up with. Um, I'm going to pull myself out of the text and look at you and say, uh, I make prayer books um, all the time. The reason I make prayer books is because the daily office has been a tremendous friend to me. And it has been a friend throughout my day. And what I do every day, I do morning prayer. I do the something. I do midday prayer. Then I do something. Then I do evening prayer. And I try to do something. Why? I have an anxiety disorder that makes regular life sometimes feel unmanageable. And so what I do is I sit and collect myself with the daily office. And then I just, when I leave that prayer, I go and do the best I can. The hardest time for me is at midday. Midday is when the day seems to be collapsing around me. I seem to have lost the thread of the morning optimism. The evening is not yet here, and yet I'm just, I'm in a pit. And not, you know, I know I'm going to be okay, but there's a sense in which you're like, what is going on today? And there was a prayer that I have in midday um, that strengthens me. I'm going to read it to you. It's from a psalm. There is no king who can be saved by a mighty host. Neither is any mighty man delivered by great strength. A horse is considered a vain hope to save a man. Neither shall it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him and upon those who put their trust in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to feed them in time of famine. What did I learn from the pit of noonday anxiety and noonday what is going on with my life? I learned the only thing we get in the pit is a deep and abiding fear of the Lord. We learn in the pit to fear the Lord, which means we learn to wait and we learn to trust in the pit. Why is that? Because the future will not be provided by our worries or by our efforts. The future is provided, as Genesis shows us, by the, what I call, inscrutable 
meaning mysterious, meaning you can't make heads or tails of it. The inscrutable and irrevocable meaning is a final word and it overturns all other words. The inscrutable and irrevocable mercy of the Lord provides the future for God's people. And what you will see here is that in the midst of all this danger and peril and shame and fear, the Lord's mercy is at work to overturn the verdict against Joseph and to overturn the verdict against God's people and to provide a future where there wasn't one. The future is the unique provision of the Lord's inscrutable and irrevocable mercy. There is um, something here that we find uh, deep within the pit. Deep within the pit, and it's this. There is something about the pit, there is something about the messy history of God's people that vindicates God's name in a way that we would never understand, but is true. There is something about claiming an identity as a sinner, which is someone who lives in shame and fear and bondage, that gives us access to an understanding of the Lord that people who are not sinners do not have. Sinners have the best revelation of the God, of who God is, that is possible. First Peter says that the angels long to look and to understand the preaching of the gospel. Why do they long to look? Because they do not understand the gospel like sinners do. The angels who dwell on the, with the holy of holies do not get the revelation of God that we do. Why is that? Because angels have never had to have the Lord descend into hell to bring them out. Angels have not had to have that happen to them. But we have. We have had to have the Lord descend into hell on the cross to drag us out of the pit. And what do we have then? We have a unique perspective on the Lord's mercy that cannot be stopped and cannot be bound. Some of the best proclaimers of the gospel I know are recovering addicts. They have a window, an understanding of the Lord's mercy that is invincible. They walk into shame and fear without any shame and fear. And they proclaim the gospel as if Christ is speaking it from their very mouth to people who are in bondage. And how do they know that? Except the Lord has met them in a place where no one else has met them to drag them out. What do we learn from Genesis? I want to quote just one other passage that has meant the world to me. Um, if, I can, <laughs> if I can find it. If you, Lord, were to mark what is done amiss, O Lord, who could abide it? But there is mercy with you, therefore you shall be feared. Therefore you shall be feared. The Lord's mercy is an occasion to fear him. Who else could descend into the dead to draw out the dead and to bring them to new life? Who else could forgive sins? What do we learn in the pit? We learn reverence and a holy terror at the Lord's unfathomable mercy by which he is even able to make the messy history of God's people right our own personal history he is able to set right 
and by which He gives us access to His mercy in a way that we stand in holy fear of. Who is this God who would have such mercy on people such as us? And when we have received such mercy, how should we then live? How do we walk into places where mercy is not offered to many and offer the mercy that we have received from the Lord who has descended into the pit? Amen. Pennsylvania.